Welcome to the 19th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about what to do when things break. In this field, things break. Things break frequently, things break often. And today we're talking about things that are not a hard drive or a DIM. We're talking about service impacting events like network failures, data center outages, um, more mundane things like a database master failover that didn't actually reassume the right role or insidious things like network latencies starting to spike or a single slow server dragging down the rest of a tier of servers and so an intermittent connection problem is kicking in. These are the kinds of services or these are the kind of outages we're talking about today. Things that usually take more than uh, five or ten minutes to diagnose and and figure out the path toward or toward working toward a solution, and what process uh, works for us and generally works in in this uh, profession uh, for walking down that path and getting toward a solution. Because sometimes things break, and it's a little bit more than just replacing a hard drive in a in a server in a data center in Dallas. So one of the first things to do is when there's an issue, be have the members of the team be aware of the incident management procedures. If you have a ticketing system or a status page where you file the ticket or you post an outage for people, other people to consume, it's important that everybody knows how it works, everybody's comfortable with the process and who gets alerted and how they get alerted to it. If you have a Twitter account, Make sure the intern isn't running it. This is a serious communication line for the business. It keeps customers confident that you guys know what you're doing. And when you let just sort of random people play with the accounts or do things or post spurious events or clutter it with not critical messages, people don't take things seriously anymore. When the intern you know, finishes his summer internship with your company and no one else knows the password to your company Twitter account, that's bad. If you're looking for a hosted solution for posting outages, there's a bunch of solutions for it. Um, statuspage.io, catchthequeue.io, status.io, those things. And there's other people who just have static page generators that will post um, to the GitHub serving page, or you can have it into an S3 bucket. So it's a static external thing that you're not managing that should hopefully be up even when you're down. Yeah, something that's definitely outside your cloud. It's probably a good idea to have your SSL certificates installed on it and have it a subdomain off of yours, so status.companyname.com, so people can easily identify that it is part of your company. However you communicate, choose something, rehearse it, understand it, know it well. Practice it. I think that's one of the that's one of the key things I will harp on this entire uh, episode is so few people... Uh, practice their incident management. Um, even simple things. Um, one of the clients that I'm doing work for uh, has a separate JIRA project for uh, incident management tickets. And it's an approach that I actually like a lot. If there's an uh, customer-facing or even internal um, incident that that affects uh, a reasonable amount of people or causes some uh, issue that's a lot more complex than uh, replacing a hard drive in the middle of the night, um, there's a ticket for it. And even as simple as rehearsing, making sure that you can open the incident management tickets, 
feed out the forms uh, correctly uh, so we can start off that chain of communication. One uh, of the things practicing is, the small things or even the large things. One of the things this client does that I really like with the incident management tickets is the help desk has access to them. So they can, the help desk can look at problems as customers are complaining about things and look for open incidents. And they, they will know very quickly if, oh, there's an open incident for the public web servers. So, okay, that, that's going to impact customers' ability to log in, customers' ability to use the API, those kinds of things. And very quickly, you know, from a support perspective, what's been impacted. Or we have an outage, but it's not impacting customer systems, but things may be slower to respond. So again, you can prep the support channels for the correct information so they know what's going on and they don't look like idiots trying to help your your revenue streams. Or we have an outage with the visibility system so we're not aware of the other outages happening at the same time. Oh, wait, oops. It's happened before, it will happen again. So in the first five minutes of your outage, in the first kind of, there's an, there's an issue, you've been alerted to the issue either by a fellow team member, an automated alert or chat message, or you've looked at a dashboard and something looks off. The first couple of minutes are really important to handle correctly because it will set the tone for the rest of the incident. The first thing to do is identify clearly what the symptoms are. So if you have a web server that's responding slowly or an API layer that's responding slowly or replication for a, de a data store has fallen behind, identify what the problem is and how it's outside of the normal because that's going to be a key piece of information moving forward. And it's important to find the the right set of symptoms, not the symptoms that occur because of other symptoms of a failure. It's important to get to the bottom of that stack as that will will lead you to the diagnosis the quickest. And there are really oddball failures that you will run into in your career that will mask other things. And as, as you dig over the course of an incident, you will find more and more of the root problem and keep your, your, especially your internal notes about what happened up to date because it will help the next person who goes down this path hopefully find the problem quicker. The other things they do in the first five minutes are to alert the rest of the team if there is a team. Hopefully you're working on a team of people and basically give everybody a heads up that, hey, there's a problem with something. I've seen the alert. I'm working on it. And it's important to it's important to be respectful of your team, uh, depending on large and small. You know, some events are just all hands on deck. Um, some events are uh, things you can do yourself. Some events are... You need yourself and you need these two or three other key players in your team. Um, and it's important to be able to notify the team, the entire team, hey, there's an issue in a way that doesn't wake everybody up. But make sure you do wake up the folks that are the key people that you need, uh, you know, cooks in the kitchen to solve the problem. Um, depending on uh, Depending on how things go... Uh, you might need to be aware of the fact that you're going to need some sleep and going to need somebody else to firefight in your stead. The other thing to do is, if you don't have an automated system for handling this, is understand who the consumers of your system are. So if it's, that, if it's a database, you need to let the application team know that the database is responding poorly, which is probably going to be calling their on-call person and saying, hey, we have a problem with the database, I wanted to let you know that there's a problem. We're aware of it. We're working on it. 
as we have information, we'll pass it along to you. This lets them prep their teams for firefighting in case things get worse. And if you're lucky enough to be working on these problems during the day and not in the middle of the night, delegate everything that you can because spreading the problem domain amongst different sets of eyes can be very helpful in kind of discovering what's going on. The really the best practice I could ever encourage uh, folks to do is to uh, plan, build your systems and rehearse your systems and practice having practice doing upgrades or uh, dealing with failures during normal working hours. Uh, your system should be redundant enough to be able to handle that and you have everybody's eyes on board. Um, in in uh, past jobs, one of my most favorite things about being able to do maintenance and other tasks is that I got to the point where the load balancing systems were working well enough, I could pull maintenance during the middle of the day. Um, if there was a problem, everybody was right there to give a hand or figure out what was going on rather than just me being a cowboy in the middle of the night. Um, and that was very helpful for dealing with uh, uh, the issues that cropped up, uh, which would have cropped up in the middle of the night or in the middle of the day, uh, no matter when I did the maintenance. Um, so just being able to work when you're when you're in your working prime is, is really important for dealing with uh, firefighting and incidents just like this. One of my favorite maintenance windows is 9 a.m. on a Tuesday morning. You give everybody time to come in from their morning coffee and whatever else they're doing. It's done at their desks and read their initial email. And it's not from the first day over the weekend and it's not a Friday. And you can get to work on on a Tuesday. That That's my a perfect example. My gibberish has been made clear. Thank you, Brendan. No worries. So the first 20 minutes of an, of an issue, um, within the first 20 minutes, you should be identifying workarounds to the problem. So if you have a secondary set of application servers or another route for the load balancer, or you can fail over a network interface, you should do it. Because after... Fail over to a different AWS region. You don't want to leave customers in a degraded state for longer than you need to. You want to fail people over to a working system while you continue to troubleshoot the broken one. It's never a good idea to just restart things and just ignore problems to make them go away. But it's also not a good idea to leave customers in, in kind of a half-open, half-broken state. So you want to move people off of the broken system onto, onto working paths as fast within the first 20 minutes. And part of that depends on the cost and time required to uh, move your customer base to your alternate data center or your DR environment. Um, I've worked with folks that have had uh, really nice active, active, or active passive systems um, where you can take down part of the cloud and customers don't notice. Um, and I've worked with folks where it's a multi-day or multi-week um, task to move over to the, the DR site. Um, so you know, depending on, on how things are, are running, there are uh, considerations there as well. Also within the first 20 minutes, you should have identified things that have changed in the system recently. Either somebody's landed a commit in the, in that went live in master or somebody's upgraded a network switch or somebody's decided to bring in a new tier of things in or marketing has sent out an email bringing in a whole bunch of new customers or changing patterns of customer behavior. You tag um, your releases, right? What's the difference between the tags? 
Or you use Git, right? Git blame is my favorite. Yeah, or if you're unlucky and you have a huge commit, Git bisect, and you start digging through and trying to figure out where where the, the change came from. But that's, that's as you dig. Um, this part will be very... The identification of the things that have changed usually helps point you in the correct direction, especially if the problem isn't obvious in the beginning. You know, if if a, if a MySQL master has failed over, but read didn't get or write didn't get set on the new master, that's a pretty obvious problem, and you can work towards fixing that. When replication just slows down to a crawl, but all the systems seem to be perfectly healthy, you have to figure out where things went wrong. And so, looking for changes, looking for things that are out of out of normal spec is really important. And usually once I look at changes, um, sometimes they're really helpful in getting me pointed in the right direction. But that doesn't always mean it's the change itself or that specific bit of code that's at fault. Um, a usage pattern may may highlight a weakness elsewhere in the system. And you can get some uh, good breadcrumbs for where to look there. One of the things um, I like to do at this stage, um, depending on the severity of your outage, is uh, appoint uh, one specific person on the team to be your gateway for communication. Uh, This person interfaces with management, um, takes care of updating your uh, incident management tickets, takes care of your uh, public announcement system, um, and tries to shield the folks actually working on fixing the problem from that constant interruption of, is it fixed yet? Is it fixed yet? And also helps uh, making sure that the folks fixing the problem and the folks on the other side, the customers or the management, um, both have a complete understanding of what you're battling, what's going on, uh, rather than than having so much com- communication going back and forth that everybody has sort of a different piece of the puzzle the other thing this person can do that is extraordinarily helpful is basically keeping time for the event so say at utc whatever you know event started and as major things either change or attempts or uh, attempts to fix things have been made or things have been posted you keep a timeline of events so later on when you're reconstructing how you could have played it better or how things could have been handled differently you have, you have the actual ordering event and not people's fuzzy recollections from, well, 2 o'clock in the morning is when I did this, and at 2.30, so-and-so called. No, you, you have an actual log that has the right ordering of events as done by one person who can keep all of that stuff together. Yeah, and with, with one person set at that task, it's really easy to put that stuff together during or afterwards. Once you're an hour into a major outage it's time to change gears a little bit. And for me, the most important thing that a lot of folks either miss or lose sight of is you do not play the hero at this point. An hour into an event, it's time to start really waking everybody up. The smaller team, the less the less people there will be to wake up, but you need to start really reaching out, finding management, finding other teams of people and saying, hey, we're we're deep into this. Something's really wrong everybody who can fix this needs to be aware of the problem, looking at the problem, everybody who's impacted even to a minor degree because an hour into a major problem, you you have a real issue. Yeah, this is, if you're still cowboying uh, by yourself at an hour, um, yeah, stop. 
one of my and and one of my favorite stories about dealing with outages like this is um going into work one day and I was headed into work about my normal time uh I didn't really know anything was was strange I had seen some odd messages on chat but I didn't really put the pieces together at that point I showed up at my office I asked my coworkers hey what's up and I saw that glazed over look that 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 just told me instantly they had already been at work for 12 hours and one of the things to think about um, at the first hour um, once you're deep in the problem, once you've got other people, uh, a key people that can help you fight the battle is there's probably more people you can bring in to help solve things and put things together faster. But it's you need to keep an, a, an awareness of if this is the middle of the night, if you've worked a full 8 or 12 hours before 9 a.m. Uh, the following morning, you're going to need folks that continue to, to firefight and deal with the technical issues that resolve um, after you've gone home for a break. And it was it was that incident. I walked in, and my coworkers had been there for 12 hours at that point, and they said, Jack, this is what's happened. Jack said, oh, crap. And they told me, this is what we need to do to work around the problem for specific cases. This is what has already been done. This is where we think we are. This is what you can do to help moving forward. We're going home to get some sleep. <laughs> this is a particularly good place for management, especially if you have um, high-functioning management or technical management that knows a lot about the way the systems actually work. The management should be stepping in at this point and saying, I don't care if you're the best person on the team. You've been here for 12 hours. You need to go home. You need to get some sleep, get some rest, come back in eight hours, you know, get out of here, calm get down, some sleep. Yeah. Cause you are not helping anybody by being up for 24 hours. Um, another um, great thing a, uh, a good manager will do uh, when you're multiple hours into an outage like this is he'll make sure you eat. Um, if you've got to break into petty cash to make sure the folks firefighting are are well hydrated and well fed um, so that they can uh, put in the rest of their eight-hour day. That's that's important as well. And it's a small price to pay in terms of cash to have a team that feels appreciated and is able to handle issues. A couple pizzas and some Coke is nothing to the hourly rate you're probably paying these people to fix your problem. One thing that I think we've... Uh, uh, skipped over that I really wanted to mention um, that person you have dedicated for communications if you're more than an hour into an event uh, that person needs to start doing regular uh, communication updates to whatever your status uh, system is absolutely or your uh, incident management tickets so every 30 minutes every hour not about but pretty much like clockwork um, at 30 minutes or every hour um, update that those tickets. Um, even if you don't have that much of an update to say, we're still in progress with this issue. We expect an ETA of make up some good estimates. 
Um, but that keeps your customers in the loop, uh, keeps them feeling like you guys are really working on the situation. And really for uh, a lot of, of those updates, you will have something that will be significant, um, if not your customers, for the management and other internal folks that you're working with. One of the good things to do once you've gotten through the event, um, on the far side of the event, is most most of these events are 12 to 36 hours at the longest end, is to go back and have the timekeeper collate their notes and run a postmortem as best you can. And the idea here is not to blame the person who set the system up or the person who dropped the, the switch or whatever happened. The purpose is to understand why it happened. And if you had a public-facing outage where you impacted customers who are paying you money, it is often a really good idea to be able to publish a sanitized version of the incident report on the internet to say, hey, this is what happened. This is why it happened. We are going to take these steps to mitigate this problem in the future, or this problem's unmitigatable because Amazon, you know, US East went down. And so nothing we could do. We sat by until they brought things back up. And as soon as they were back up, we validated the integrity of our data and however it is. It gives the customer a feeling of confidence that you guys know what you're doing and you know how to handle future events. Because future events will happen and all customers who have any sanity will also understand that these things do happen. It's how you handle them that demonstrates your ability. Yeah, being uber transparent with your uh, events like this or security events like this um, really will uh, help embody trust in your in your customer base. Um, I've uh, the uh, folks I use to manage my passwords because uh, doesn't everyone have way too many passwords? Um, has a good reputation and practice of being very transparent and open about uh, security incidences. So they publish more security incidences than a lot of other security firms might. Um, and it's it really shows what their track record is, um, what they've done to uh, address these problems, how they protect your data, and that's what you want to uh, impart to your customers as well. So, Jack, you and I have had a long and varied career in in this field. What are some of the really bizarre problems you've seen that? might help people short circuit some of their problem solving and look for the kind of weird stuff. <laughs> Usually when I find it, I hit my head on my desk a few times and fix it and go home. And after the beer wears off, I've forgotten it. So my, my current favorite, um, cause it's happened to me twice in the last 18 months is forgetting about the impact that high latency networks have on data transmission speeds. And that's, uh, you know, everybody thinks that, hey, I've got 100 meg of Ethernet into my apartment. Um, shouldn't I have 100 megabits of bandwidth? It's, it's very, very few people that actually realize that the latency of the link uh, dictates more what your maximum throughput is rather than the, the, the bandwidth label from your ISP. Well, more specifically, it's the socket buffer size on the receiving and sending ends. So you say, as you send data, you have to be able to get a response back to acknowledge in TCP that you've gotten the data back and forth. 
And there's a handy bandwidth calculation you can do called the bandwidth delay product. And I'll put a link in the show notes that if you starve the, the socket window or the, the, the TCP window sizes and they don't automatically slide open as they're supposed to, you can have your gigabit link, but on a 35 millisecond round trip connection, you're not going to see anything close to a gigabit if, you're, if your buffer size is really small. So for our users listening, the bandwidth delay product or the BDP, it's really super simple and a good rule of thumb folks should have. It's the product of the bandwidth times latency. So if you have a 100 megabit link and you're experiencing an 80 millisecond bit of latency, uh, what do your buffer size need to be set to um, to actually utilize all 100 megabit? You multiply 100 megabits times 80 milliseconds, that's one megabyte of buffer space that you need. Uh, the seconds cancel out. Uh, don't forget the difference between bytes and bits, but that's a real easy one. Yeah, I had a an issue recently with Kafka that our cross data center replication links were usually hang out around 35 milliseconds. Sometimes they're down at 32, and replication just fell off the off the cliff. We couldn't figure out what was going on, and we were digging with a bunch of into a bunch of different tools. And then I noticed that our round trip time was up to 260 milliseconds. Somewhere, somewhere, somewhere along the path, things got interesting, and we were able to transmit a tenth as much data as we had before. And we we called up our provider, and they they kicked their network people into gear a little bit, and things came back, and everything came back to where it was supposed to be. So it was a really interesting demonstration of your systems are working perfectly. There's no disk problem. There's no I/O problem. Your network interfaces are up, and they're working, and there's no errors. And performance is just awful out of nowhere. So check network latency. It's a really good one. There's actually a talk um, from Amazon reInvent Conference last year that I'll put in the show notes um, talking about network stack tuning. And it goes into congestion control. So even minor TCP um, drop percentages can have a huge impact in performance, as well as the things with your network latency stuff. One of my favorite failures that I got to deal with was when I corrupted 30,000 people's home directories in one fell swoop. Um, and it uh, took me some time to realize that um, since I had directly formatted the uh, storage LUN rather than uh, using LVM or a partition table, um, I got to learn that my uh, SAN that I was connected to uh, used the boot sector of the LUN to store some metadata about the volume. Um, and, well, I was also using that space since I had directly formatted the volume. Um, so that was that was a real audible thing and uh, really drilled home the importance of using uh, logical volume management or more advanced file systems that are aware of the uh, importance of the uh, first sector on disk and what other advanced SANs and whatnot actually can use that a little bit of data there for. I speaking of SANS for a second, I've seen extraordinarily expensive SANS have incredibly bad performance issues because of two two issues in particular. One being slowly failing DIMMs, ECC DIMMs in their controller modules, causing controller module failovers back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And having the failover paths for the IO um, fabric backends not have equal cost or equal um, performance characteristics. So either the cables are different lengths or one of the cables is slightly damaged. 
And so it, when you fail over to it, you know, when you move your active link over, suddenly performance just goes completely screwy, but the sand looks just fine. Um, those are both, th those are hardware faults in the sand that people don't often look for that are important to kind of keep your eye out for. Pro tip, fiber has a radius that it can bend within. And if your bend in your fiber run is is too sharp, um, the fiber doesn't work so well. The other two, well, I guess the other three things that I have on my, my short list of craziness are, it's always DNS or NTP, but it's always Usually DNS. Usually DNS. Um, you will have the most screwy, stupid problems with all kinds of things, especially in a desktop environment. So if you're doing Active Directory or doing one of the, the Kerberos-based systems, if your clocks are five minutes off, nothing works. If your PTR records don't exist, things aren't right. If your quad A's are off, other things are going to get kind of screwy. You've so, got a typo in your SRV records. The port goes in which field again? Or even just having your MX records incorrectly set for SPF or having um, oh, SPF improper... SPF is, is... Yeah. Yeah, or, or having improperly weighted your, your MX um, records. The, all these things cause really insidious problems that you don't notice at first or you notice them but you can't figure out why they aren't working correctly because dns has all kinds of layers of caching some of which you can't control there are devices that you can set time to lives on that ignore you happily or oh we're we're going to cache this forever and never actually let go of it um and don't even get me started on windows xp's dns client libraries because they were <laughs> oh they were awful Oh, DNS is so much fun, especially since uh, when you're running email services, DNS is basically how you figure out the reputation of sending servers. So yeah, if your SPF is typoed or oh, it can be in such a knot and really quick, and it takes so much time to actually figure out what is actually wrong. I'm so glad I don't run email anymore. <laughs> so glad oh one one final thing um unix hosts especially older hosts can run just happily with a with a failed boot drive then they can run happily for weeks months months i think years because once they once they've paged in all the things they need off of disk they just keep running until they have to go to disk again and if the, and if the working set they're coming off of fits inside available ram they're just fine, and they just keep running. Ah, uh, file cache. Yeah, and when this is your AFS database server that uh, has the databases of which user maps to which num numeric ID in it. Yeah, that's not that's not a <laughs> that's not a pleasant thing to discover. You don't have, you've been running out of, in memory basically for months. One of the things I I think there's a very fine art of is a lot of us, and I'm just as guilty as anyone else. Um, have a, a bad habit of blaming the network during uh, an outage event of some type. You don't see an issue with uh, your applications, your tools, but all you know is communication to from one machine to another, from one specific machine to another specific machine, doesn't seem to be behaving as normal. Um, it's really easy to blame the network. Um, if you're a network knock person, I'm sure you're... you're uh, lifting your, your fist in sympathy because um, I'm sure you've had to deal with a lot of people blaming the network for no good reason. Um, 
And part of this episode is is looking at some of the finer points of latency and DNS and things that um, that can go wonky that are network related, but are a whole lot more specific and more uh, driving toward a solution than than hey, let's get the the network engineers on board. Clearly, it's the network. Yeah, if you're going to blame the network, you need to be prepared to have packet captures instrumented before you call the networking staff up to say i'm looking at the dhcp packets and i'm asking for option for these six options and i'm only getting four back so something's eating my options in the middle or something isn't getting relayed correctly come to them with an understanding of the problem and not just a hey the network's broken because usually the network isn't broken usually the problem is an application somewhere is misconfigured and the network is faithfully relying or relaying what you've told it to relay. And on the flip side, networks are incredibly complex devices. Um, and I've, I've most of the folks I've worked for, um, there have been weird network screwball things where we can all document this problem. The network engineers can document this problem, and we can't find the, the solution to it. Um, so while you don't want to, to find yourself in the habit of just blaming the network, the network may be the most complex part of, of your, your application or product. I guess what I'm trying to say is that a well-paid networking team and a friendly relationship with the networking team are two very important things to having a stable environment for your business to operate in. Oh, yeah. And a good network architect is worth their weight in gold. And it's about what you pay them, too. If not twice Um, their weight. (laughs) But, uh, you know, have lunch with these folks. You want them on your team. Uh, you're, You're there for the same reason. And you should have that relationship to work well with each other and and be able to. uh, Trade back and forth when there's an issue and work together to pinpoint the actual solution. Absolutely. I guess that wraps it up for episode 19 of the Practical Operations Podcast. We are your hosts, Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. Thank you, and good night.